Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. I'm very much looking forward to this, and I know several Awakeners know Beth and Cal. Uh, So just to give those of you who didn't see in the alert a little bit of uh, background. Um, So Beth, I'm just shortening these a little because I put them in the alert and on the ACE page. Um, While working on her MDiv, she spent several years living in Vancouver's downtown east side, fostering friendship building and community in her work with Jacob's Well Ministries, um, and co-pastoring a church plant called, called God's House. In 2013, she and her housemate, Denise, came out publicly, and they were married the following year. No longer able to work in the CBWC, they both accepted jobs with Generous Space Ministries. Uh, Your elders all read a book that came from that ministry um, last year, which is a Canadian nonprofit dedicated to dismantling fear, division, and hostility at the intersection of faith, gender, and sexuality. Four years ago, Beth and her friend Mark launched a non-denominational affirming church called Open Way in Vancouver, where she co-pastors today and still has a church service to get to after this. So, wonderful. She also works as a wedding officiant. So, if you're in Vancouver and you're looking to get married, yeah, Beth's your person. Uh, And then Dr. Cal Malina, who's speaking as well, I think is Beth's dad. Yes. Um, He's a true blue Canadian Baptist, grew up in First Baptist in Prince Albert, and then attended Avalon Emanuel Baptist while studying to be a chemical engineer at the University of Saskatchewan. He went to the Baptist Leadership Training School before going to a Southern Baptist Seminary in Kentucky, later did a doctorate at Golden Gate Baptist. I hear the word Baptist like six times in this. I love it. Um, He also helped plant Bonavista Baptist in Calgary. Uh, My husband interned there a long time ago. He was a worship leader. Great. Um, And then after seminary, he went to First Baptist Lethbridge as an associate pastor. After that, for the next 27 years, he was at Emmanuel Baptist in Saskatoon. But for the last 12 years, he's been at First Baptist Prince George, first as lead pastor and then as Pastor Emeritus when he retired in 2015. So before they call them up, after over these decades, Cal has been very involved in denominational life, teaching courses through the Cary Center, which is our denomination's um, Bible college. He served on the board of board as president of Canadian Baptist Ministries, recently served on the board of Canadian Baptists of Western Canada, that's us, for six years before being asked to resign because of his convictions on LGBTQ issues. So Cal and his wife Joanne have four adult children and two grandchildren, and they're active allies to the Christian LGBTQ community, and together they co-host a national support group for the parents of LGBTQ kids and teens. So, um, Beth and Cal, welcome. Thank you. Uh, can't wait to hear from you. Take it away. Awesome. Can y'all hear me? Just like a thumbs up. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> oh, that's weird seeing myself on the screen. I think I'm going to minimize this. so I'm not going to get distracted by my own self. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for inviting us and both my dad and I to your service. We've heard really great things about Awaken and it's Nice to be able to be here without having to make the trek out there from Vancouver and Prince George, respectively. 
Um, this is actually the first time my dad and I have been invited to tell our stories together, like in tandem at the same time. So yeah, thanks for the opportunity for us to, to work together from afar, from, you know, join together from three different places here. And I'm just grateful in general that you're making space to hear stories as part of this series that you're doing on the body. I think in a way, stories take the more abstract things that you've probably all been learning and sort of put flesh on them. The stories embody the lessons that you're learning on the body. And I also think stories are just so important to our faith in general. I love how, how Jesus got in trouble for telling too many stories that were too messy, that were hard to sum up with, you know, one clean moral of the story. They were confusing sometimes. So I'm going to tell you my story as a queer person growing up in a Baptist church with a Baptist pastor as a dad, and then he's going to jump in and tell parts of his story too. And it might be hard to figure out what the clear moral of my story is, the lesson of my story, and maybe you'll all leave with different ideas of what that is, and I think that's okay. I just hope that you will keep seeking out a variety of queer stories, because we tend to only hear one or two accepted queer narratives in church. Often they're ex-gay storylines or stories of celibacy, but obviously that's not all queer Christians. So yeah, just grateful to be here. Um, just one caveat, because I've already used this word queer a few times, so just some context for that word. Um, there's a vocabulary challenge in, in the LGBTQQIP2SAA community. <laughs> we have a bit of an acronym issue. Uh, that's our long form. And many members of my community have, you know, felt forgotten and erased in society for a long time. And so within our community, we're really wary of further erasing people by failing to include them and name them. Um, but again, as people are finding more and more courage to define themselves and um, you know, really put a label on their identity, that acronym is growing longer and longer and becoming kind of unwieldy. So some of us use the term queer community or queer as an umbrella term that replaces that whole long acronym. And I think it's kind of our best option. It's not perfect because some people had that word queer used against them as a slur and they don't really want to reclaim it or try to apply it to themselves now. But in my own generation, gay was actually the slur. That's so gay, people would say in a negative way. And queer kind of had this cool edge to it. So I use both gay and queer for myself. Um, and the rule of thumb is just don't guess what somebody likes to use. Just ask them how they identify themselves. Uh, but know that today when I say queer or queer community, I mean lesbian, gay, trans, bisexual, intersex, two-spirit, and all the other identities on that spectrum. Okay, so here's my story. I am actually a fellow Albertan by birth. I was born in Lethbridge, where my dad was a pastor for a while, and uh, I only sadly spent the first six weeks of my life in Alberta before he took a job at Emmanuel Baptist in Saskatoon, and that became really my church home for most of my life. My siblings and I spent every Sunday morning in the center pew, second from the front on the left, and we knew all of the best hiding spots in that building. We spent a lot of time there. I used to go to the midweek church kids club called Pioneer Girls every Wednesday night. I earned all of the badges and the little pin at the end. <laughs> I spent every summer at a CBWC camp called The Quest at Christopher Lake in northern Saskatchewan. And at age 17, I even spent a year with the Canadian Baptist Volunteers Program. I was working with a Canadian Baptist missionary family in Belgium. And yeah, so my dad has a lot of Baptist in his bio, obviously, but I really felt like I was pretty Baptist growing up too. 
And that whole time that I was back to Sting, uh, I did not really realize that I was gay. Not consciously. I had this sense that there was something different about me, but I had a lot of that kind of firstborn pastor's kid perfectionism and pride. Any other pastor's kids out there? Missionary kids? <laughs> Maybe some of you know what I mean. Um, and I wouldn't even let myself think about it. I wouldn't go there or ask myself those questions. I just tried to kind of seal all of those wonderings and nigglings away in like a little corner of my brain so I didn't think about it. And whenever it did sort of sneak up on me, I would just pray in abstract ways and hope that God would sort it out. Almost like, you know, when people have a prayer request, but it's unspoken, I, I wouldn't even speak it to myself. I would just say, God, figure that out and I'll compensate for this weird sense of shame I sort of have about something that might be different by trying to do really well at school and by being extra scrupulous in how I practice my faith, doing my devotions every day, praying every day. Now, I arrived at youth group at the peak of purity culture in the 90s, and that was when books were coming out called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, things like that. So there was a sense that you shouldn't uh, date anybody. You should just wait and be matched up with someone to be married. And so I actually got to congratulate myself for my lack of interest in dating most guys and take pride in how I, I wasn't being tempted in the same way that maybe some of my peers seemed to be. And I just told myself I was waiting for the perfect Christian guy. And I didn't date anyone through high school or my undergrad at the University of Saskatchewan. After I got my biology degree, I decided I wanted to attend Regent College in Vancouver. And I half thought maybe I'll meet a guy there you know, who's really serious about theology because I haven't met any of those in Saskatoon. <laughs> and one of the other pastors from our church, from Emmanuel Baptist, he had gone on to Vancouver to pastor in a Baptist church there. And he came back and visited. Actually, I think this is the anniversary, like 17 years ago, when he came back and visited and told me that there was a young woman in his current church named Denise, who would be starting at Regent at the same time as me. And he thought the two of us would make pretty great housemates because we were both low maintenance, in his words. So we got in touch and we found a place to rent along with two other housemates. And Denise picked me up from the Vancouver airport when I landed in 2005. And she and I got along really well. We would go for lots of walks um, so I could explore Vancouver and I would kind of try to figure out all the birds and plants because I'd just done this biology undergrad. And she introduced me to good beer. I hadn't really had craft beer before. Uh, good music, the Pacific Ocean, obviously, and spicy food because I'd had a pretty bland um, diet back in Saskatoon. But as I continued to live with her, we got closer and closer, and I started to worry that what I was feeling for her was not maybe fully appropriate. And I felt like I needed to maybe acknowledge and finally deal with that little sealed off part of my brain with my attractions so that I wouldn't risk losing her friendship. So in 2008, halfway through my seminary studies, I finally came out to myself and to one of my pastors and to Denise. And I was really grateful that none of them reacted in judgment or rejection. You know, it's hard to describe how much, how heavy that burden is of not being able to show your full self and then how incredibly freeing it can feel to tell that shameful hidden secret and find that people will still love and welcome you. I was too afraid to tell Denise that I was attracted to her. I still kind of hoped that God would take those attractions away. 
Several months later, my younger brother, Danny, who was studying in Victoria, came to spend Thanksgiving weekend with me and my and Denise on one of the Gulf Islands. And he had seemed kind of preoccupied and distant for that whole weekend. And finally, he pulled me aside and sat me down and said, Beth, I'm not attracted to girls. And I was stunned. And I just blurted out, well, I sometimes am. <laughs> and it was this completely mutually unexpected and perfect coming out for us as siblings. We have two other siblings between us who are both uh, women married to men. Uh, so we have a mix in our family. And that Christmas, that was 14 years ago, both of us chose to come out to our parents and to our two other siblings, which, as you can imagine, was a lot for them to take in. And maybe that's a good time for me to pause and let my dad kind of catch you up to this part in his story. So I'll turn it over to him. Am I on? Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll just speak because I assume I am. Um, well, when Beth and Danny came out to us, it really was a complete surprise. Beth had us all fooled with the whole I like, kiss dating goodbye thing. And Danny was dating a girl all through high school. So when they came out to us at the same time, uh, we were pretty shocked. Um, we assured them of our unconditional love for them. We've always been a close family and a loving family. And, um, and our openness to understanding more. Um, but I was pretty typical in terms of having a conservative evangelical background um, I, as a pastor in the Baptist denomination. Um, I had picked up along the way that uh, homosexuality was a sin. I hadn't really preached on it very much, but I was certainly aware of that attitude in our denomination. <clears throat> and there were organizations like Exodus International, which proclaimed that gay people could be cured of their orientation uh, through repentance and prayer and, and therapy. Um, and um, I believed it. I, I really didn't have any personal relationships with gay people all through my probably first 20 years of, uh, of ministry. And so my stereotypes of um, gay and queer people came from TV, from you know, books I'd read about usually in negative ways. And I'd never really studied the biblical passages and kind of avoided the whole issue over the years because it was of course contentious. Um, and like many other pastors in our denomination, I voted in favor of resolutions which uh, defined marriage as only between a man and a woman and supported resolutions that pastors were not supposed to be involved in gay marriages. Um, and it was only until the last couple of years in my ministry at Emmanuel, as Beth said, we were there a long time, 27 years, that I had two kind of personal experiences which began to unsettle me about this. Uh, one of them uh, was a third party complaint against somebody and I took it upon myself to confront this person with this. And uh, I did, as I think back, just about everything wrong that a pastor could do uh, in talking to that person. And um, the end result of that was that person leaving our church and never coming back, and uh, which haunts me to this day. The second was a situation in a meeting where a person was being considered for a lay uh, eldership in our church. And somebody made the comment about them that they thought they might be gay. And I watched that group. Uh, this was a close friend of mine and somebody I really respected and loved. And I watched how that group basically disqualified them. And that conversation, I think, uh, tainted the, their attitude toward that person over the next years. Um, so I had these two experiences, which really bothered me. Um, but it was only when Beth and Danny came out that Joanne and I, my wife Joanne and I, began to 
uh, educate ourselves uh, and to begin to broaden um, our understanding uh, of gay people. Um, we had planned that year with all the kids out of the nest to actually move with CBM to Nairobi. Uh, and uh, we canceled those plans. And when our kids came out to us and decided we didn't want to be on the other side of the world and that we had to work this thing out. So we read lots of books in those next four or five years. We watched lots of videos, but mostly we got to listen to a lot of stories. Um, of course, there were our own kids and their stories to us about how they had experienced their sexual attractions uh, growing up in ways that we had not understood um, and uh, how they sometimes, as Beth said, tried to deny it and, and then eventually were able to come out to themselves and come to grips with their orientation and eventually uh, to us. Um, we met some of their uh, friends. Danny was uh, an actor, and there's, of course, a lot of acceptance in the acting community, and so we met some of his gay friends, uh, but mostly through Beth um, and her connections with Generous Space. Joanna and I attended two large conferences sponsored by the Gay Christian Network, one in Portland, Oregon, and one in Houston, Texas, and it was really there. There were several hundred gay Christians and a few hundred of us gay parents, and we were the sexual minority, and um, just meeting so many and hearing their stories in the evenings, they would have these open mic times and story after story of, of young people, but beautiful young people sharing the pain of rejection from their, sometimes their parents, sometimes from their churches. Um, and um, they had a, a hug room where the parents were invited to come and just offer hugs to these young adults who had not been hugged by their own parents, you know, for years. And I, I began to understand that the amount of pain that was in this community. Um, some of the deepest relationships we had with queer people though were at the GS retreats that Beth hosted in Western Canada and really got over, they come back year after year and we got to know people more personally and, uh, and heard stories of trans people and the experience they were having. And then as Joanne and I uh, began to do this parents uh, group, this support group that's a national one where we were on Zoom, uh, again, hearing lots of stories from parents' perspectives uh, uh, and of their young people. And there were really three themes that began to move me toward an affirming position as I heard all of these stories. And one of these themes was that sexual orientation was innate. It was not something people chose, but it was something that they were born with. And being the chemical engineer in me, I had to find out about this, uh, what science said and found out that this is verified there are a biological explanation for people having a same-sex orientation. And the second thing was that sexual orientation was immutable. It was not something that could be changed. Um, it was innate and it was immutable. And uh, I read how Exodus International had kind of caved and had admitted that 99.9% .9 of the people who went through their programs maintained their sexual orientation at the end and they apologized for the really lives that had been told for years that people could change their orientations. And the third thing I realized in hearing these stories was just the whole lot of pain uh, of which the Christian church was largely complicit. Um, this kind of fear and self-loathing in, in young people as they uh, worry about their feelings at the beginning, the damage that conversion therapy has done as some people have tried to change this orientation and the rejection of family uh, that has created homelessness and sometimes suicide, and the general rejection of these people in the church, which has caused them 
to really abandon the church and leave. And the imposition of this idea of lifelong celibacy on people um, that, that means they have to live in loneliness for their lives. So all of these things began to change in me as I actually got to know uh, people in the queer community. So I'll kick it back to you, Beth. Thanks, Dad. Uh, it is really cool to be just doing this with, with my dad and to um, just be able to remember how really privileged I am to have a father and a mother who have really grown with me and learned with me in all of this and um, have loved me throughout. They were just, they were so good at how they responded to my brother and I, even though they didn't really know what it meant for our family and for themselves, they, they really committed to just continuing to be family through that. And that's a huge gift. Uh, so let me catch you up to where my dad got to. Uh, after I came out to my family, I, I really launched myself into more theological research about this. Um, my brother's coming out had been kind of a convenient excuse for me because I didn't really want to come out at Regent College. I didn't really feel safe at Bible school doing that. So I went to the library at my school and took out book after book about sexuality, telling people, oh, this is about my brother. <laughs> I feel kind of sheepish about that now. But I would, um, I would type up quotes and organize arguments and counter arguments into a Microsoft Word document that I think is now over 200 pages long. Uh, if anyone wants a copy of it, just send me an email. <laughs> but I would kind of expected this open and shut case for the traditional side. That's what I'd always been taught. Um, but I soon came across theologians who affirmed same-sex marriage and didn't seem to just be twisting scripture as I'd been told they were. They seemed to have some really well-argued points. You know, I was carefully considering, was the sin of Sodom homosexuality, sodomy? Or rather, as it says in Ezekiel, was it the sin of inhospitality and pride? I waded into all the controversy of how to respect and apply the Old Testament law today as Christians who are no longer under the law, but guided by the spirit, especially when the laws about same-sex practices seemed to be connected to the cult prostitution and idol worship of surrounding cultures. And of course, like every queer person, I wrestled with Paul in the New Testament and how to interpret his newly coined words that he uses, like our senekoitai, which seems to mean sexual practices of some sort, but we kind of have to figure out how to translate that, how to interpret his run-on sentence arguments, like when he, was he talking about people like me and Denise, or about Roman men who had culturally sanctioned sex with boys, pederasty. In short, I found really good and really bad arguments on both sides, and all of this really complicated my life. I felt like I was sitting on an uncomfortable fence where I couldn't find peace or certainty, certainty either on the traditional side or the affirming side. And by that point, both Denise and I had graduated from Regent. We had begun pastoring here in Vancouver in CBWC churches, and we were being asked to consider ordination in the CBWC. Those were really confusing years. Denise was starting to come to terms with her sexuality and her attraction to me. And despite the fact that we were not physically intimate, we were filling the role of partner in each other's lives, and it felt inadequate to describe each other as housemates. We soon realized that we had two potential paths in front of us. We could live celibately together and keep our jobs as Baptist pastors, but face a life in the closet with people probably whispering about us behind our backs. Or we could come out publicly and get married, but lose our jobs in the churches that we loved. And both of those paths came with sacrifice. And it took us years to make that decision, mainly because I felt 
stuck theologically. In the end, I landed in an affirming place uh, that I think God can bless same-sex marriage. And that was for several reasons that I, if you, if you search my, my name, if you look at some videos, I, I go into them in a lot of detail sometimes, but just briefly, I studied the whole trajectory of scripture, the whole big story of scripture, and saw this pattern of God's ever-widening circle of acceptance for those who were previously rejected, even welcoming in sexual and gender minorities like the eunuchs. And these eunuchs in scripture were castrated men who were really the sexual and gender minorities of their time. They were banned from the temple in the book of Deuteronomy, but then there were prophecies in Isaiah 56 of eunuchs, eunuchs being welcomed back into God's temple. And then Jesus honored eunuchs by counting himself among them in Matthew 19. And then finally, Philip in the book of Acts baptizes an Ethiopian eunuch, one of the first converts to the Christian church. I also started just looking into what are the reasons in scripture behind the laws against same-sex sex? What are the, the moral logic underneath it? Things like the need to carry on your family line and populate the kingdom of Israel. And also the patriarchal shame that would be associated with a man taking a lower woman's sexual position. These things didn't seem to apply any longer today in our over, overpopulated and increasingly egalitarian society. And like in the book of Acts, when the Jewish Christians witnessed the Holy Spirit at work in Gentiles like Cornelius and welcomed them into the church, I could not deny the evidence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the queer Christian couples that I was meeting and befriending. I still wasn't 100% sure that I was right because there were still good arguments and 2000 years of church tradition on the other side. But I began to realize that the God I believed in would not be less merciful toward me than I would be toward someone. If I watched my own child spend years praying and studying something, trying to figure it out and then choose wrong, if I saw her sincere heart, her desire to do what was right, but she still got it wrong, I would not banish her to eternal suffering and damnation. I would have mercy on her. I would give her another chance. And so coming to that understanding was strangely one of the biggest acts of faith in my life. So one day in 2012, I was frustrated and sort of said half jokingly to Denise, you know, maybe we could just get married when we retire from ministry at age 65. <laughs> and to my surprise, she got very serious and said, you know, if we both are at the point where we believe that God would bless our marriage, then why are we waiting? We'll have to leave our denomination behind in these particular jobs, but I think there'll be other ways for us to live out our callings. So we began a difficult year of coming out publicly in 2013. It was the year I really learned how to trust God. It was a year when I couldn't get through the day without starting reminding myself that I was God's child and that nobody's negative reaction to my coming out could change God's love for me. And it was a year when God weaned me off of some of my perfectionism and people pleasing and pride because I couldn't make everyone happy with this decision. But it was also just such a relief to let people in on my love for Denise, for my journey with her, and for them to know how much she meant to me. As expected, this year ended with the loss of our jobs, our pastoral jobs in the CBWC, and we had to take a long break from church and really mourn that for a while before we headed into the excitement of getting engaged and planning a wedding. 
So we were married in May 2014, after eight years of knowing each other. And we were grateful that our whole families, except one of Denise's brothers, were there to join in the celebration, along with a lot of friends who traveled from long distances to be there. Shortly after that, as um, Nikayla said, we went and accepted jobs with Generous Space Ministries, um, which was in Toronto at the time. And they were offered to us out of the blue. It felt like a real gift from God to have that given to us right when we lost these other jobs. Um, sadly, this organization closed down this past spring, but it was really a beautiful source of community for queer Canadian Christians while it was open. Denise was working with queer youth and I worked with adults offering pastoral care as people came out and trying to connect them to one another locally for support. These jobs gave us the chance to meet and hear the stories of so many queer Christians, many of whom had had it a lot tougher than we did when it came to things like family rejection or church and spiritual trauma resulting in mental health challenges and suicidal thoughts for some people. As the generous space community was expanding across Canada, Denise and I felt like it was time to move back to Vancouver in 2017 and continue our work from there. And part of our motivation had to do with a dream that I had to launch a new affirming church in Vancouver. The options for queer Christians in Vancouver were really all mainline churches. And I saw this gap in terms of a church for other people like me who had more evangelical roots. My friend Mark Fox, a straight man in his 60s, agreed to be my co-pastor and help me launch this church. He had a lot of experience also pastoring in the CBWC in Vancouver, and I could not have done that adventure without him. He's been such a great companion and partner in this. And our little church is called Open Way. We're um, just over four years old, and we've got a crew of about 30 Zoom screens. These days, we still haven't gone back to meeting in person like y'all are doing, but hopefully soon. Um, we have the cream of the crop of queer Christians and some pretty great straight and cisgender people joining in as well. And I really wish that we could have been your sister church in the CBWC. Instead, we, we had to start off on our own volunteering our time and funds without any denominational support. But we've been able to build these connections with some other local churches who share some of our values and we partner with them on bigger projects and they keep us honest and they encourage us. So it's been a difficult adventure for me as I wrap up my part of the story. It's been good. It's been a beautiful journey, and I'm really grateful for, for what God's had for me in this life so far. I think if God had revealed the whole thing at the beginning when I was that little kid sitting in that second pew from the front, I would have been like, hell no. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in the spirit revealing things to us step by step. And today I wouldn't trade my, my queer journey of faith with anything else. Uh, I love living my life with Denise as my wife and her unconditional love in the midst of all the ways that I fail is, is gradually really making me a more Christ-like person. And I get to pastor some of the most resilient, courageous, forgiving, gifted, justice-minded Christians who also happen to be queer, who I'm going to be joining in about 10 minutes and saying goodbye to you folks. And I really can't believe that I, I'm trusted with this beautiful community and with so many chances to share my story with other people who are trying to wrestle with how they're going to move forward when it comes to LGBTQ realities. So that about brings my story up to date to the present day. And I'm going to let my dad close uh, this storytelling time with his second half. Thanks, Beth. And I know you have to go preach at Open Way, so feel free to leave. I won't take it personally. Um, <laughs> 
So my story paralleled Beth quite a bit because I was studying some of those same things and she was sharing uh, some of her journey at Regent with me during those uh, years and we read some of the same books. And um, the thing that may be a little different for me, having grown up in the denomination and being involved with some of the governing structures and whatnot, was that those years uh, caused me to take a hard look at the evangelical movement as a whole and how it has used scriptures in ways that have really hurt people over the years and that it seemed was happening again in the LGBTQ uh, situation. Um, I went to Southern Baptist seminaries, uh, which was kind of common in my era. And so I was in Louisville, Kentucky, and I learned more about the Southern Baptists. They're very big on the authority of scripture, of course. And, um, but their denomination was formed because of their support of slavery in 1845, uh, there was a convention where they were presenting a slave owner, and the Southern Baptists supported him, the Northern Baptists did not, and the two split, and that's how the Southern Baptist denomination was formed. And they then supported the Confederate cause, they, they uh, worked against desegregation uh, of whites and blacks in the Southern states, they worked against the Civil Rights Movement as well. And it wasn't until uh, 1995 that the convention made a formal apology for their position on slavery and, and on anti-segregation. But in the meantime, just to grasp the, the, the scope of the evil of slavery, I mean, 12 and a half million Africans kidnapped from their homes, uh, stored like cordwood in the holds of these slave ships, uh, brought over to the new world. Uh, Two million of them died on the way and were put overboard. Um, and then to be on the auction block and sold, uh, wives and husbands split up, children taken from their parents, to work as property of somebody under the whip. And multiply that uh, by millions over many years. And this horror of slavery was something that was biblically uh, defended by our tribe, by evangelicals. They pointed to Old Testament passage in, in Leviticus where the Jews are told that they can have slaves and that they can't treat Israelites ruthlessly, but they can consider slaves as property if they're from other nations. And then you go to Paul and he says, slaves obey your masters as unto the Lord. What's clearer than that, they said. And, and Paul feeling this obligation to return the, the runaway slave Anisimus to Philemon in that little book. And these were the passages that were held up as biblical, that slavery was ordained by God as an institution and would justify this terrible suffering um, that uh, was in the, the Southern United States and has spilled over now into racism and Black Lives Matter and is still there as part of the American experience. The Southern Baptists also recently have decided that women are not qualified to be pastors. And when I was going to seminary, there were a couple of hundred women in the MDiv program. Now there are zero women in the MDiv program. They have reinstated that the biblical idea that only men uh, can preach. And so um, they go again to passages in Paul, and some of them are pretty straightforward, where Paul says women aren't to speak in the church and ask their husbands later. And, um, and even though we know from science that women are equally intelligent and capable of, of speaking and doing lots of things to men, that somehow the, this teaching is still there. And when you think of the centuries of women being second-class citizens, denied opportunity and education, the vote, and, and still today uh, uh, to not be able to lead churches, um, based on 
passages in the Bible that they hold up. Um, and we can see it in other areas like anti-Semitism, how indigenous peoples were treated, the residential schools. Um, and it seems that it's often been our tribe, the evangelicals, who have been most complicit in using the Bible in certain ways to create suffering uh, to groups of people. And we're the ones who are supposed to have the high view of scripture. And when you turn to the gay uh, community and how that passage Beth talked about, the Sodom passage, which most biblical scholars would agree is not about the sin of homosexuality, but sodomy laws and using the word Sodom, uh, sodomites, and um, using this word sodomy, the association that that story has given to the gay community of rape and violence. Um, and um, in 1841, the first sodomy laws in Canada for a, a gay couple to be together as partners, even in their own home, it was a capital punishment. You could be killed for having uh, a gay partner uh, at the beginning. And so these sodomy laws based on Bible passages that have come down through history. And you just, again, think of the suffering of people. It's true that there's always been about 5% at least of uh, people in the gay community in our general population who have this innate and immutable uh, same-sex orientation, but have lived under the fear of even death uh, or punishment or rejection, and you multiply it over the centuries, uh, what kind of suffering that has caused. And so as I looked at the Bible again, with some kind of fresh eyes of, of seeing the story, hearing the stories and thinking about our evangelical heritage, uh, it seemed that the biggest problem we have had that we have not started with Jesus, that we have jumped around the Bible finding passages that seem to justify um, our biases, but not to really grapple with what Jesus taught. And what did Jesus teach? I, I've become a bit of a red letter Christian in these last 10 years. And I'm very interested. And I see that again, as Beth did this week, how Jesus was all about inclusion, uh, that the love principle was key, the great commandment to love God, to love our neighbors, ourselves. And he added to that the new commandment that we love each other as he loved us. How he taught his followers not to judge others, lest we be judged, that grace and forgiveness were the highlights of his ministry that he came to give life, not to take it away. The laws that seemed to be a burden, like the Sabbath laws, it was they were made for man, not the other way around, that God's laws are to give life. And that uh, we know people by their fruits. And this trajectory of the kingdom, that Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, that we are finding this unity in Christ. So all of these things together, and I guess I could talk a lot more, but I'll just say that uh, taken together, they move me to this position of being affirming. And so I'm affirming in several ways that I generally accept and, and affirm uh, LGBTQ folk. Um, I've met some of them and they've become people I love. Um, and if they are attempting be, to be a, a disciples of Jesus Christ, I, I affirm their full inclusion in the church in all respects and leadership as well. And I believe that God can and does bless committed, faithful covenant relationships between people who have a common same-sex orientation. And it's been my joy to be at my kids' weddings, all four of them, 
and to celebrate the partners they found. And I believe God was there with us and continues to bless those relationships. So thanks. It's been great to be able to share those things with you. Here, uh, Beth and Cal, but there was applause here. And I can't tell you how uh, grateful I am and the leadership at Awaken um, is to hear you uh, share your stories and be so gentle and uh, hospitable to us and uh, just to, to pitch this vision of God's table as this really big table uh, where we all have a place at it. And so I'm just so grateful for you. Um, and I will say there are Awakeners on Zoom and Awakeners here in person who are dually affiliated, meaning they come to Awaken Sunday night, but they have another church family they're part of Sunday morning. And I really think I can say this on behalf of Beth and Cal that um, I think you should take this podcast of this service and share it with the leadership at your church. And I know that Beth and Cal would love to come and do this for your community, for that other community. And I think that you all probably feel it, this burning in your hearts that these stories are so important. And uh, the time is now. We don't need to wait until the world's figured everything out to start um, wrestling through this. So I'm just really grateful. Thank you both. And I just want to pray a blessing upon you for your service uh, today. And and I just pray, Holy Spirit, um, you bless the work of their hands and, and of their mouths. And that as they um, are becoming more and more like you, that the, your love would flow not just to them, but through them into, the into their neighborhoods. And I ask that we would feel uh, joined in the spirit by our siblings in, in, in all across um, this land. And I just thank you for the vision you have of a banqueting table where each of us has a spot. I ask that your spirit of reconciliation, of unity, of membership into one body uh, would, be, would be bearing good fruit in our midst and in the three different churches represented here today. So, amen. Thank you so much, my friends. Uh, I know you have to go to another... Uh, service so we bless you in your in your going and we are blessed by your uh being here so for those of you still here and those of you on zoom we are going to go into a time of communion and what a beautiful way to end uh this sort of i guess to go into the next part of this discussion at the communion table here's our passage to guide the communion table today isaiah 25 it's a dream being pitched the prophet writes on this mountain, meaning the place where the temple is, the house of God, the Lord of heavenly forces will prepare for all peoples a rich feast, a feast of choice wines, of select foods rich in flavor, of choice wines well refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the veil that is veiling all peoples, the shroud enshrouding all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe tears from every face. He will remove his people's disgrace from off the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. They will say on that day, look, this is our God for whom we have waited, and he has saved us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let's be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And what's powerful about this text is, sorry, you can stay on it for a minute. It's a dream. It's a vision. The community that produced and preserved this text was going through a very difficult time, a crisis, a trauma collectively. And in order to get through it and survive, this was the dream. One day, there'll be a big feast. And the shroud, the cloud, the gloom, the despair will be lifted from our eyes. And there'll be no more tears, no more suffering, and no more death. And holding on to that hope is how they survived. 
And I feel this in my bones, that as a, as a community, we long to begin dreaming again and having a dream. And, and we long as a whole world right now to imagine a post-COVID, uh, that, that term probably is not exactly what we'll ever have, but a world where we can laugh and dance and hug and sing together again uh, and feel safe and feel loved. And so the dream of this. So we're gonna, um, on the next slide, we're gonna do a breathing prayer for a moment here, an embodied, embodied exercise in our body series. And on the inhale, the prayer is, hope is our inheritance. And the exile, I mean, the exhale, wow. <laughs> Poof, that is two very different things. In exile, we feel that way a bit right now. On the exhale, help us to dream again. So I just invite you to take some deep breaths, and I'll say the words. I do this in morning prayer sometimes. You inhale, and I'll say the words. So, and, and we're doing it together, which is kind of neat, to breathe together, like we're one set of lungs. Inhale, hope is our inheritance. And exhale, help us to dream again. Inhale, hope is our inheritance. Exhale, help us to dream again. Hope is our inheritance. Help us to dream again. Hope is our inheritance. Help us to dream again. Last time. Hope is our inheritance. Help us to dream again. It feels scary to dream in a world that opens up, shuts down. Opens up, shuts down. Oh, it's scary. You just want to stay shut down this time so you don't get hurt. And that's not just about COVID, is it? So we're going to go to the next slide and take a moment. Um, I appreciate Amy does this and Kara does this um, in their worship sets. And so if you could dream into this community, Awaken Church, which is kind of what we're doing and what we've been doing here today, if we could capture that dream, I invite you to take a moment. And if you're on Zoom and you're, you're, you're in this dreamscape with us, go in the chat. One word, one phrase, it can be very simple or complex. What could we dream into? Because that dream of the feast, of the table with good wine and good food and no more tears and no more death, that was a dream that got that community through. So what could be our dream for these next coming months where things are a little unsure and we're scared to hope? Feel free to take a moment and if you have a word, something you dream, say it. Um, if I were to begin, I'd say, I dream of all those kids being here again. Kids, Sunday school, nursery. Feel free to. Home. A feeling. Abundance. Inclusion. That's a poetry night. Fly Micah Borne out, finally. We still got that WestJet credit. <laughs> we got to use it. Poetry night. Potlucks. A retreat. 
breaking bread together. Coming from Zoom, I dream that too, that we could all break bread together. A big loaf right up here, sourdough made by an awakener that we all rip off chunks of together. Gathering around fire pits. Bike rides. Like night rides. Yeah, we could do those now. Anybody anybody in the room? A dream? Exciting music. Beautiful. Worship nights. Happy, upbeat, dancing music. Hearing the singing voices all around you. Reconciliation is being together again. Comfort from pain, physical and emotional. <clears throat> Hope is our inheritance. Help us dream again. So for this communion table this evening, I have brought a bunch of packets of seeds. Because it's almost time, right? Almost time to start planting these tiny little insignificant looking little things into that dark soil and trust that something beautiful comes with time and patience, love, sunshine, water. And this is what we're doing by dreaming together is we're just planting seeds, trusting that flowers are coming, the spring is coming. And so I have these seeds and I have um, seeds of sunflowers and moonflowers um, hollyhock, snapdragons, and I have a tiny little bag of very special seeds. It was brought to me last year of wildflowers so that I could remember and celebrate the life of Barb Harvey. This little seed packet. Like, I can't plant these until I have a special place. Uh, but they're such a little bag filled with hope and uh, good memories and a dream of being at that big table one day where we are all actually back together again. And so with that, if you look in Matthew 26 at the communion text, Jesus actually is referring to the Isaiah 25 text. A lot of people don't know that. He says um, they're having a, a dinner, a feast, a, a meal with good wine and good food. Um, and it's a symbolic meal of liberation and, and hope in times of great difficulty. And it says in Matthew 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many so that their sins may be forgiven. And I tell you, he said, here's the dream, I won't drink wine again until that day. That day we're all dreaming about. That day on that mountain when the shroud is lifted and the suffering has ended. That day with you. I won't drink it until I drink it in a new way with you. And that's a plural you. That's all of us and those who've gone before and those yet to come. With you in my Father's kingdom. And so every time we take this, we remember the sufferings of Christ, the way that suffering brings um, reconciliation, forgiveness, and renewed community. And we remember the hope we have that we're going to be at that table one day. And nothing, no force in the whole cosmos will stop that feast and that day that we know is coming. And so I'm going to um, pray over this community that we would 
dare to dream again, that we would remember where we've been and where we're headed. Um, and then we're going to um, serve each other communion. So please bow your hearts with me. Oh, lover of our souls, creator of the universe, God of all living things, we entrust you with this dream that we've dared to dream. And I ask that though it may feel like a tiny little speck, that you would take these dreams and plant them in the deep soil of your love. Give us a hope and a confidence that though the winter may feel long, that you are the God of growing things. And so I would ask that we would submit ourselves as a body, as a unified church to you, and we would pray that your spirit would breathe new breath upon us, that we as a community would bear good fruit in this land, that as a community we would bear the fruit of patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, love, joy, and that the nations, the neighborhood would be nourished by what grows here. So give us courage to dream again, I pray. Thank you for your body, for your blood, for your sacrifice. As we consume you, may we truly become part of you and joined together in you. I pray in the name of Jesus, our crucified and risen Messiah. Amen. This is our benediction. A blessing to summon rejoicing. When your weeping has watered the earth, when the storm has been long, and the night and the season of your sorrowing, when you have seemed an exile from your own life, lost in the far country, a long way from where your comfort lies, when the sound of splintering and fracture haunts you, when despair attends you, when lack, when trouble, when fear, when pain, when empty, when lonely, when too much of what depletes you and not enough of what restores and rests you, then let there be rejoicing. Then let there be dreaming. Let there be laughter in your mouth and on your tongue shouts of joy. Let the seeds soaked by tears turn to grain to bread, to feasting, let there be coming home. Go in peace. You are loved, and the face of God shines upon all of us.